Good evening, friends. It'll be good if you can keep your Bible open. Uh, it is good to be together. Uh, we're going to spend some time in that passage. Uh, uh, if you're one of the kids and you have one of the worksheets, then the sermon should give you some direction uh, about the questions on the sheet. But uh, if you all get a bit lost, then just flip it over and go crazy. Uh, you can just draw away. But let me pray uh, that God might speak to us. Uh, dear Lord, uh, as we reflect on your word this evening, I pray that you might speak to each of us, uh, that we might accept it as it is, uh, your word, and that through it we might be confident of our salvation and live lives worthy of you. Amen. There are certainly uh, lots of opportunities in life uh, to have our faith tested. Uh, and it's uh, one thing to say, you know, you're a Christian when things are going well and when things are easy. Uh, but it's much harder to say you're a Christian uh, when things get difficult. Uh, when things get difficult uh, as a result of, of our circumstances, you know, things like sickness, uh, then in one sense it's out of our control, isn't it? You know, uh, we can trust God in it, uh, we can get angry at God in it, uh, but we can't change our circumstances. Uh, but when life gets difficult as a result of being uh, persecuted and oppressed and ridiculed, uh, well, actually, we do have the power to control things. We, we can get ourselves out of the situation. We can change our opinion on things. We can change our view. Uh, we could renounce our faith and all of this pressure and persecution would go away and the world would simply welcome us back with open arms. But how we respond uh, when things get difficult and how we respond when we are persecuted and ridiculed uh, says a lot about the reality of our faith. Uh, is it the perceived faith? Is it just simply a facade that we put on uh, for the world and, and for ourselves? Uh, or does it have deep roots uh, that is grounded uh, in who God has created us to be and in his grace and mercy? And that was certainly true for the Thessalonian Christians. So uh, last week, as we read the passage together, uh, Paul wants to affirm their faith, and he wants to affirm that they can trust the messenger. They can trust him, uh, that the message is good, uh, and that his motives are good. So he's saying, I'm in a position to know the truth, and I have no reason to tell you anything different. I don't want your money, I don't want your praise. And Paul says, I came humbly like a child. I cared like a mother, and like a father I instructed you, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. And so tonight we're going to look at how the Thessalonian Christians responded to that. And to sort of give a little bit of a sneak peek of where we're going, uh, we have two reactions to God's word. Uh, so we have the Thessalonian Christians who accept God's word and we see how God's word works in their life. Uh, and then we have those who reject God's word and want to suppress God's word and we see God's wrath. Uh, so that's the picture of where we're going. So let's begin verse 13. Read it with me. And we also thank God continually because... When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. So throughout history, God has spoken in a whole bunch of different ways. 
Uh, sometimes he's spoken through people's dreams and visions. He's inspired the prophets. He spoke through his son, Jesus. Uh, and after Jesus uh, ascended to be with the Father, uh, he spoke through the apostles. And he speaks most significantly to us through his written word, what we call the Bible. Uh, and it contains everything we need for salvation and for life. Uh, so God inspires people, but he inspires them to speak within their context, within their personality. So it's Paul speaking, uh, but God is speaking and inspiring his words. And he does that sometimes through speaking uh, the facts of history uh, and giving an account of events. Uh, sometimes God's word is poetic, you know, like the Psalms. Uh, sometimes uh, God's word is sort of illustrative and, and metaphoric and dramatic, you know, like the book of Revelation, where you've got, you know, beasts and eyes and all sorts of, of you know, crazy things. Uh, but they all speak a message of who God is and God working. But I think the challenge for us and for the world is, is why should we actually trust that the Bible is really God's word? Uh, or is it simply God created in our image? Uh, Billy Graham once said, uh, Down through the years it's been ridiculed, burnt, refuted, destroyed, but it lives on. It's the anvil that has worn out many hammers. Uh, it's a great picture, isn't it, uh, of God's word enduring. Uh, that is true, but let's be honest, uh, there's plenty uh, you know, of parts of the Bible that we find difficult to understand uh, or accept. You know, some of it, you know, like uh, when Satan comes in the form of a snake in the garden. You know, it sounds more like myth and superstition than real life. Uh, or someone getting swallowed by a large fish. Uh, sometimes I think uh, we find passages difficult to reconcile morally. You know, did God really say... Uh, you know, to Israel to go and wipe out a whole nation. And so people read a passage like that and they go, well, I can't reconcile that with my picture of God and therefore uh, I, can't, I don't just believe this, I can't believe anything. Uh, but perhaps we need to start at the other point because there's actually a lot of the Old Testament that we can clearly understand. You know, I don't understand how my car works uh, but I do understand enough to get in and drive it. Uh, so we can't necessarily understand everything, but we certainly have plenty we can understand. And most significantly for us as Christians, uh, we trust Jesus. And Jesus says, you can trust the Old Testament because it is God's word. And we trust Jesus because he demonstrates his power uh, that he really is the Son of God in his miraculous life and most particularly in his death and resurrection. And we believe that the New Testament is true because it's handed to people who were witnesses to the life of Jesus and his resurrection and who he's then entrusted with his word to pass it on. So for Paul... Uh, what he is sharing is not simply his opinion of what God should be like. It's what God showed him as he travelled on the road to Damascus. So he put it this way when he writes to the Christians in an area called Galatia. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. 
Uh, but it wasn't simply that we should take Paul's word for it. You know, as we read Paul's word, as we read the Gospels, as we read uh, the other apostles like Peter and John, uh, we see that, that there's a, a message that is consistent. Uh, and certainly for the apostle Peter, he recognised Paul's words as God's word. Uh, so in the letter of 2 Peter, uh, Peter says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. So Jesus affirms the Old Testament as God's word. The Bible, Bible's writers believe they are proclaiming God's word. Uh, but of course, if you're a skeptic, uh, none of that counts very, very much. I mean, of, of course, the Bible writers would say they're, they're you know, speaking on behalf of God. You know, for, for a Muslim person, uh, they would say the Quran is inspired by God. Uh, if you're a Mormon, uh, they would say we've got a, a new revelation from God. Uh, so simply claiming something is true uh, doesn't actually make it true. But certainly as a starting point, as Christians... We don't place on the Bible anything more than the Bible says about itself, that it is God's word. But for Paul, the real proof is that God's word works. So in our passage, verse 13, you accept it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And what does God's word do well, the first thing it does is it, is it exposes. So the writer to the Hebrews says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Yeah, I love this verse uh, partly because, you know, who doesn't love uh, anything to do with a double-edged sword? Uh, but also because it, it sort of captures uh, the reality and it, it cuts through our sort of self-delusion and self-righteousness and pretense and denial and excuses, uh, not just before God, but, but to ourselves. Uh, it shows us who we really are on the inside as well as the outside. Uh, and when we see who we are, you know, truly and honestly, uh, then that can't help but to provoke a response. Uh, because we get to the point of recognising that we are sinners who need a saviour. Uh, we repent and recognise Jesus as Lord. Uh, and as we read God's word, it shows us, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus as Lord? And that helps us to say no to ungodliness and to seek to live lives worthy of God. So if God's word is living and active, then our part in all of this is to place ourselves in a position where we can actually hear God's word. Uh, yes, yeah, so as we come together tonight, this is brilliant. Uh, we come together and we praise God together. We, the songs we sing are grounded in God's word. We open God's word. We read Thessalonians. Uh, all fantastic stuff. Uh, but if you just ate fruit and veg once a week, uh, you probably wouldn't be that healthy uh, or constant. You know, each, but, but if we spent time you know, in you know, coming together each week for uh, church, that's brilliant. Uh, if we spent time at church and then say youth group or connect group, that would be even better still. But if we spent time in God's word each day, then that would be best of all, wouldn't it? That we spend time each day uh, reflecting on what is God saying to us personally 
And then what does that mean for how I live? Or what does that mean for the day-to-day realities of life? Um, Because God's word should speak into our conversations. Uh, It should speak into how uh, we relate to people at work, how we relate to our bosses who we love, how we spend our time and our money. Uh, God's word should speak into how we respond to temptation. Uh, Do we justify sin or do we flee sin? And God's word makes a difference. Uh, The American Christians uh, love to do research and, and they've got the money to do it. And so they've done a whole stack of research on, does reading God's word actually make a difference? Okay, and so here's sort of a, you know, bringing it all together. Uh, This is some stats. So I'll just read the top bit. Consistent across all of these individual studies is the finding that engaging the Bible in the Bible four or more times a week is the strongest and most reliable predictor of spiritual growth. And so what we see is when we spend time in God's word, godly habits increase and ungodly habits decrease. In one sense, that should be the least surprising thing on earth. It's kind of like saying, you know, you do exercise and you know, this incredible thing happens, you get fit. Uh, You know, it's a bit like that. We shouldn't be surprised uh, and yet we often are. Uh, And it reminds us, you know, if we want to be good evangelists, we want to go and tell people about Jesus, then actually start with ourselves spending time in God's Word. If we want to be generous givers, uh, the only way we're ever going to do that to part with our hard-earned money, which we love deeply, is to spend time in God's Word, to be convicted by God's Word that there's something even greater than us having it. At the same time, God's Word helps us to flee temptation. Excess alcohol, porn, sex outside of marriage, gambling, anger. Yeah, they're pretty compelling stats, aren't they? We shouldn't be too surprised, but at the same time, do we actually take them on board as Christians? So God's Word is at work in saving us. God's Word is at work transforming us. Uh, But most significantly for this passage, we see God's Word at work in our willingness to persevere under severe suffering. So verse 14, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's church in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. There's the real test of our conviction, isn't it? When things get really tough. Uh, And Paul wants to remind them that they're not alone. You know, he's not saying, you know, uh, we can take this away from you. Uh, but certainly there's something about having company, isn't there? You know, even when we are suffering, uh, there is something good about knowing that there are others with us. And so Paul wants them to know that what they're experiencing isn't unique. You know, this is what the Christians are experiencing in Judea. Uh, This is what Jesus experienced when he was arrested and flogged and ultimately crucified on a cross. Uh, This is what the Old Testament prophets experienced when they chose to speak against the word of the day, which was peace, peace, when there is no peace. And the people hated them for it. Uh, And of course, this is what Paul has experienced as he's gone from town to town preaching the gospel. 
And of course, that suffering continues in history, doesn't it? You know, it didn't just stop with the early Christians. Uh, throughout history, we've got stories of people who have suffered for Christ. Uh, if I can just share just one uh, that is perhaps m- uh, more well-known than most. Uh, in about 1550, uh, there were two uh, bishops by the name of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Uh, and they refused to recant on their views of the Bible. And so, as a result, they were burnt at the stake. So back to back, a large pile of wood burnt together. Uh, And as they are about to die, uh, this is what Latimer says to Ridley. He says, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Yeah, it's an incredible moment of faith, isn't it? Even in that moment, just before death, uh, completely clear about who they are before God. But of course, most stories go unrecorded, uh, unnoticed. Uh, But every day, uh, there are Christians who are living out their faith around the world and they are suffering as a result of it. Uh, Some, uh, they've been ostracized from their family. Uh, They've been culturally shamed. Uh, For others, it's economic persecution. They can't get a job because of their faith. Uh, And for others, they are imprisoned and some are killed uh, because of their commitment to Christ. And their perseverance is a testimony to the power of God's word. That as they heard the gospel, they were so deeply convinced that nothing could move them. I think uh, for the most part in our Australian culture, uh, people don't really care uh, if you're a Christian, as long as it doesn't sort of impact them uh, or impact their sort of comfort in society. Uh, But I think increasingly we're starting to see that where uh, Christianity and faith and society intersect, uh, we're seeing more and more tension, aren't we? Uh, We see it sometimes, uh, for those who are involved in Scripture in schools, in public schools, uh, there's more and more of a push uh, to see it removed from the public system. Uh, Parents choose to be a part of it, uh, but there are some who say, I don't just want my kid to not be a part of it, I don't want any kid to hear about Jesus. Uh, Last year, uh, there was, or earlier this year perhaps, uh, there was a lot of debate in the media about Christian schools and their right to employ teachers who had Christian values. And you, you hear the, the, this you know, screaming outrage and vitriol, lots of talk about you know, they shouldn't get government funding, etc., etc., etc. You know, slowly but surely, our culture is shifting, uh, and it's becoming harder to simply be a Christian and stand up in the world. But how we respond... And how we stand up will be a testament to God's grace in our lives. Paul also has something to say to those people who would persecute Christians, to those people who reject God's word, uh, and particularly for those who persecute the Christians in Judea. So verse 15, They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be, so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. You know, so they rejected Jesus as the promised Old Testament Messiah. They hate the way Christians 
uh, are going into the synagogues and talking about Jesus and they hate Paul. You know, we read in Acts a little while ago how 40 men uh, made, you know, made an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Now, it didn't pan out so well for them, uh, and they end up very hungry and very thirsty. I'm not quite sure at what point they might have given up on that oath. Uh, but it does say something about just how much people hated Christians uh, in those early times. And again, it testifies, uh, if, if their acceptance of the word testifies to God's grace in our lives, then their contempt for God's word and their contempt for Jesus testifies against them before God. You know, they cannot claim to be ignorant or innocent. You know, they've been able to see it in their words, they've seen it in their actions. And so with that comes consequences. Verse 16, the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Uh, interesting with that verse is it's written in the present tense, which means something has happened to these persecutors uh, that Paul recognises as an act of God's wrath. Uh, almost always in the New Testament, God's wrath is something that's held back, that there is a time coming when God will judge all of humanity. Uh, but in the present, he is patient and he is restrained. Uh, but just occasionally, we, we see that wrath coming forward. So just in the way that we see uh, miracles where good things happen and they give us a little bit of a taste of our future hope in heaven, uh, so also when we see judgment, we see a taste of God's wrath. Uh, I think one other example that might be helpful, and we are having the Lord's Supper today, but that's not why I chose it. Uh, but Paul says this uh, in the context of the Lord's Supper. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many amongst you are weak and ill and a number of you have fallen asleep. So if we try to take Jesus out of the Lord's Supper, uh, then we're actually testifying against ourselves. We're saying, I know what this is about, but I refuse to submit to his Lordship. So how do we live in this world uh, where we feel persecuted and oppressed. Uh, I think our natural reaction is to always want to bite back, isn't it? People hurt us, we want to hurt them. Uh, and certainly in our brave new world of, of, you know, of camera in everyone's pocket and social media, uh, there's a whole new opportunity to hurt and humiliate. Uh, but in the words of Paul in Romans, this is what he says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with one another. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. You know, as Christians, we need to accept that some people will hate us simply for being Christian. Uh, we can't control their reaction, uh, but we can control how we respond. You know, social media exists in this sort of constant state of moral outrage. Uh, but as Christians... Uh, we need to come before people with a sense of humility and compassion and grace. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't disagree with what people are saying. It doesn't mean we don't speak into society. But we do it from a position of humility. Uh, we can show people what genuine tolerance looks like, uh, that we can love someone and still profoundly disagree. Uh, and we can pray for God's mercy. 
And if we are concerned about God's justice, then we do know that God will be just in his time and in his way. So, from tonight, one concrete challenge from this passage. It's really simple to talk about, a little bit harder to do. Read your Bible. That's it. All 20 minutes, all you get was read your Bible. Uh, we, but, we, but it's true, isn't it? Easy to say, uh, but there's all sorts of excuses of why it seems to be an obstacle in our day. You know, we get up late, we're busy, we're, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, but here's the challenge. For two weeks, commit yourself to reading your Bible a bit each day uh, and praying as you do it. Uh, reflect on what you read. What does this mean for, you, for your day? What does it mean for the week ahead? Uh, perhaps if you're particularly courageous, you know, tell someone this, you know, you're stepping up to this challenge uh, and encourage them to ask you how you're going. And then at the end of two weeks, uh, just look back for yourself and, and ask yourself the question, how has this impacted my life? Uh, some of it might be dramatic, some of it might be quite subtle. But just how has God worked through his word over the last two weeks? And reflect on that and thank God for that. And then do it all again. Let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, we do thank you that you speak. Uh, we thank you for your word, uh, that it is living and active, uh, that it cuts us to the heart, it exposes who we are before you, and it calls us to change. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you offer salvation through your Son uh, and help us to live out our salvation uh, through your word and with the help of your Spirit. Amen.